The world is old and the powers are weary. The god at the door of night has fallen and the great enemy of the world has come back from the timeless void. The shadow has awakened the great evils to regain dominion over Ardar. Darkness shall cover the land if not for the deeds of a small fellowship of elf friends. Join the players of this Dungeons and Dragons campaign as they fulfill the events of the Dagor Daggeron prophecy and strive with Morgoth on the plains of Valinor. Welcome to the Undying Lands in Part 3 of the Inglorian Bastards Trilogy, Trials of the Valor. Alright, welcome everybody to another special edition of the Long-Winded One podcast. Um, I have a very special guest tonight, um, and normally when I do this kind of a, an interview, it's to learn all about this particular person, but I can tell you that I have listened to several very, very interesting uh, podcast episodes about this person, and I will point you in that direction here um, as we meet him. Uh, let me start by saying welcome to Dr. Andrew Higgins. He is a, an expert in the interrelation between myth and language in some of Tolkien's earliest writings. Uh, he's the co-editor of a book that I've already talked about on this podcast called The Secret Vice, which he worked on with Dr. Dimitra Fimi. Um, and this was about Tolkien's created languages, um, which won the 2017 Tolkien Society Award for Best Book. He's a current board member at Signum University. And finally, he's, he's just a very, uh, very active writer and speaker in the Tolkien community and, and just generally a really nice guy. Um, so Andy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Wow. Uh, I've been really enjoying your podcast, so I'm very excited to be on this. Thank you. Thank you very much. And um, and I just wanted to point the listeners, um, I, I think I've listened to at least two of your interviews on the Prancing Pony podcast. Yeah. You had you had one in January on the Tolkien Experience podcast, which is very good. Um, and I re-listened to that, believe it or not, right before um, I talked to you. Um, and so I don't want to, I don't want to repeat any of the things that they they did in January on there, but we are going to piggyback on some of those things. I asked you to come on the podcast because I had come across um, your blog, um, which which will I will list in um, uh, at the uh, in some of the notes here, so people can find your your blog. Um, but I, I noticed that you had taken um, a, a couple of trips, um, day mm -hmm. trips to to places that were sort of core to um, the formation of some of uh, Tolkien's earliest tales. Uh, and we're talking mm -hmm. about the, the sort of the Book of Lost Tales. And um, I don't know if you know this, but we're, we're in the middle of kind of a special uh, Tolkien pilgrimage, uh, which has turned virtual after the coronavirus. Um, I, just, I just recorded one um, um, with, uh, with Mary in, in Birmingham. Uh, we're going to do one of Oxford and, and Cheddar Gorge. Um, and, cool. and I... And I, I'm just really excited to have you here after reading your blog posts about um, your trips to Warwick and to mm. Great Hayward. Um, mm. and, and, and so we're going to be sort of traveling um, uh, into the past, into the sort of very early legendarium um, back in um, around the time of like 1915 to 1917 um, as, as we talk about this. I mean, the, the blog was actually quite interesting because when I moved here to the UK, because obviously from my accent, you can tell I'm not from these parts. Um, I started keeping that blog because I really wanted to start exploring some key things about Tolkien and especially Tolkien's languages. Um, and it, it, there was some really nice serendipity that happened because as I was keeping that blog and taking those trips and, and, and I was still pretty much a, 
a new tourist in England in a way because uh, I'd only been here a couple of years. Um, I also started taking these amazing courses on Tolkien and fantasy literature with Dr. Dimitri Thiemi uh, when she was at Cardiff Metropolitan. And, uh, and it was through that that I got to meet Dr. Thiemi. And it was through that that Dr. Thiemi encouraged me to do some serious work on Tolkien. And that eventually became working on a PhD with her. Um, and I had a full-time job at the, at the time. I was, I, I was the director of fundraising at Blindborn Opera. And I thought, how am I going to do this? I said, well, you know, you'd be doing Tolkien stuff anything, anyway, so why don't you do it seriously? And so I started working with Dr. Feeney on my, on my thesis, which eventually became uh, this exploration of looking at the intertwined role of myth and language invention in the earliest version of the mythology. And I chose the earliest version of the mythology because I really felt there had been so much done on the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit and even the Silmarillion. And what Christopher Tolkien had given us was this incredible gift of his father's, you know, the history of Middle Earth. And I really wanted to dig into that very, very early version of the mythology and the language invention. Um, and so that kind of all came together um, as I was taking these wonderful trips to Warwick and up, up, up to, uh, up to what was, what would be Tabra Bell, basically. And when I went to, and the other thing that I, I found very interesting, and I found very early on in one of the Parma Elder Lombarons, which are these, um, um, language journals that the Elvish Fellowship, Linguistic Fellowship, published of Tolkien's language papers, because basically when Tolkien, um, died, he left a lot of language papers and, Christopher did a wonderful job of, of publishing a lot of it, but he also realized that he was not so well equipped to publish all the very detailed stuff about the language because Tolkien, as we know, was very interested in the idea of the development and progressions of languages. And because he was a, he was a philologist himself, he would change a lot of that as he went on. So we have over 3,000 pages of this language. And this has all started to be published in, in Parma Elder Baron and Vinyard Tangwa, these two journals. And in one of the Parmas, there was this wonderful, this little sketch on a piece of paper. Well, I didn't know it was on a piece of paper then. I just saw it printed in the thing. Of these three heraldic devices that Tolkien sketched in about 1917 when he was developing his Gnomish language, which was the language for the Noldoli. And it depicted three places. One was Tavrabel. One was Cortirion, and the other one was a place called Kelbaros. And he had little uh, little drawings next to it, and I think we'll, we'll, we'll get you an image of it. And when I went to Warwick Castle, which of course is Cortirion in the mythology, because let's remember when Tolkien started inventing, you know, the whole impetus behind it, as he said in a letter to Milton Waldman, is he wanted to create a mythology for the English, because he felt that, you know, the, the English did not have a mythology, that it had all been basically kind of taken over by the Normans in 1066 and all that. And so he started creating a world, a mythology where the, the world he was inventing was a form of England in an older time, basically. And it was through that that um, Ariel would come to the island of the elves and hear the lost tales, etc., etc. And so in the early versions of the mythology and in the lexicons of the names he invented, Key places in what would become England were actually places in his mythology. And Cortirion was Warwick. And he actually created a whole, Tolkien being the philologist that he was, 
created a whole linguistic mapping of how Fort Tyrion actually became Warwick later on. And in the little, um, em- the little heraldic device for Fort Tyrion, he actually drew a little peacock underneath two towers. Mm. And when I went to Warwick, lo and behold, when I got to Warwick Castle, there in front of me were two peacocks pacing a stately drill, just like Tolkien said in his poem, Quartirian Among the Trees. So I really felt like when I went to Warwick that I was, I was living, I was <laughs> at the place where, you know, Ariel came to hear the, the tale. So that really excited me, and I did a blog post about that, which, which you saw. And then a couple of years later, I went up further north, and I went to um, um, Great, Great Hayward in Staffordshire. And there, um, and that's, of course, the place where Tolkien and Edith, um, come, after Tolkien um, came out of World War One and was recuperating, mm-hmm. um, he stayed in Great Hayward. And that's where a lot of the Book of Lost Tales was written. And, of course, he describes the Grey Bridge of Averbell. Well, sure enough, when you go to Great Hayward, there is a gray bridge. Yeah. And there's also a wonderful multi-chimney house called Shugborough Estate. And as Tom Shippey has pointed out, Shugborough, that Shug part of it, is actually Sukkah, which means a demon or a spirit or a fairy. Mm-hmm. So this is literally the borough of fairies. And of course, in the Book of Lost Tales, this is Gilfanon's house that Ariel goes to. So we're, I was literally seeing the geography of the world building Tolkien was doing of the Book of Lost Tales in all of these visits. So it was very exciting. The third part of the heraldic device, Pelboros, is kind of depicted with a little fountain and a tree. And I've done, I actually done a paper on this um, in one of the Kalamazoo conferences. And that's actually Cheltenham. Mm-hmm. And of course, the importance of Cheltenham to Tolkien is that's where when he was 21 years old, he went down there and convinced Edith, who was engaged to a uh, another person named George Field. I always feel sorry for poor George Field. <laughs> yeah. But in a day, he convinced her to uh, to, to marry him. Yeah. And in that in the, in that heraldic device, there are actually two rings entwined, and in Gnomish, it says "reunited again." Mm-hmm. So in these three devices, we actually see the kind of the life of Tolkien and Edith in that very early period when he was writing the Book of Lost Tales. Oh wow. So that was very exciting. That's incredible. Well I'm we're gonna we're gonna look at is it okay if we, we look at some of the pictures from Warwick? Yeah, let's go. All right. So right now we're doing a flyover of Warwick Castle and mm-hmm. and, I, and I know um so for for us in the campaign, we um part two um which was called Rise of the Mormagill the the mm. characters come into um, the the sort of Avalone um, in Arisea, and then they travel through uh, the land of elms, and they come to the, the cottage of lost play, and eventually they they go to the house of hundred chimneys. But before that, they they also stopped by Cortirian. Um and I remember in researching that um, the thing that really stood out to me about Cortirian was sort of the gray brick and the towers, right? And that's mm. how I described it to the to the to the players and is it okay if i read a a, a, a small uh section from the from the Quartirian yeah. poem yeah so this yeah. was um let's see here let's see oh ancient city on a leaguered hill old shadows linger in your broken gate your stones are gray your old halls are now still your towers silent on the mist await um and so um 
Now, this was a this was a poem that um, can, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about it. Even. Yeah. Um, um, so this was, gosh, Warwick. Warwick, we're kind of we're talking about um, core um, or courtiering among the among the trees is the name of the poem, and we're we're talking. He wrote that in what 1915, November 1915. Yeah, and it and you also mentioned a lovely word, which is Al Al Minore, which is the land of the elms. And I just love the photo aesthetic of that, you know, just the way. And of course, that's 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 an example of the earliest version of Quen, what would be what was called Kenya, which would become Quenya, basically, um, of that idea. And that and there's this wonderful um, lexicon that he kept of words that he was inventing at that time, uh, called the Quenya Quenyquetso, the Quenya lexicon. Mm-hmm. And that's the earliest version we have of the Elvish language. And you find in there, Al, it says Al Al Minore, Warwick District of the Elms. So he actually puts the name Warwick in there, hmm. basically. So yeah, he he so identified these places. Um, and when you read that poem and you look at Warwick Castle, you can actually you can see where it's coming from, basically. And of course, he spent a lot of time in Warwick visiting Edith as well. So he was he was there a lot, basically. And we know that this is actually where they were married, um, just yep. just just down the street at the, the Catholic Church. Um, yeah. So, so can you? Um, for I wanted to see this so much firsthand, and I still plan to go there someday. But can, You'll can get you? There. Can you describe it? I mean, can you for the, for the listener? Can you as you're approaching the sort of the front gate and towers are looming mm. over you? Can you can you describe sort of the feeling that you had when you first got there? Yeah, you go up a very steep hill. I remember that. Um, uh, it's about four or five blocks from the train station because we went by train mm-hmm. and you go up a very steep hill and you come upon this gate basically and then way you can see the tower you know just like he describes the tower yeah. the tower is right there and then there's a kind of green underneath and that's where you saw I saw the peacocks and literally uh. if you read through that poem I think it's um, yeah here we go oh spiry town upon a windy hill with sudden winding alleys, shady walls, where even now the peacocks pace a stately drill, majestic, saffrine, and emerald. Oh, so wow. They're right there waiting for you when you come to Warwick Castle. You, you did a much better job reading the poetry than I did. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, someday I will get there, I'm sure. Um, so let's see here. I, I um, our characters when they when they went to Cortirian, they um, I, I remember researching first. I got confused because um, I, I realized that on in Valinor or just outside, sort of near the uh, the Path of Light, um, there's mm. a town. Oh, yeah, there's there's a town called Tyrion there, which is sort of the Tyrion. yeah the the home of the the Noldor, right? Tyrion upon Tuna. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so I, w- yeah. I was, I was confused at first, which was the real, like where Tyrion was. Is this a, is this a different Tyrion? It is of course. <laughs> and they met a character named Meryl, who was the lady of Erisea. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting because in a way, Cortirion, and I think Tolkien, you can see this all through, Cortirion is kind of a reflection of Tyrion upon Tuna, you know, just like later Minas Tirith will be a reflection of Gondol, you know, so and and there's that thing that um, there's that wonderful concept that Berlin Flieger talks about about you know the refraction of things as they get further away from the source they become less and less and less and that's what you see 
you know, it's it's a remembrance of Tyrion upon Tuna, basically. And then you have Port Tyrion, and then you have Gondolin, and then you have Minas Tirith, etc. So there's that kind of the, the progression of the refraction of light, basically, that idea. So yeah, so the elves built Cortirion upon, uh, built Cortirion as a remembrance of Tyrion upon Tuna. Very yeah. good. That's awesome. Well, so are, are, do you want to, um, should we progress in, uh, into Yeah, let's Africa? progress. I love All right. this. All right, cool, cool. More so, than I've seen in the last four months, let me tell you. <laughs> so we're going to travel from Warwick um, up to Stafford into Great Haywood. Um, yeah. And there are a few places I want to talk about there. And um, so I guess we're moving. So for you, this your trip to, to Great Haywood would have come about in 2011. Yeah. Um, and, um, and again, this is where this is where Edith would have been living. Uh, she moved there in, I think, April of 1916, if, if I'm getting my dates correct. Um, and, uh, and isn't Canic Chase by there where Tolkien was in... Um he was in training, basically. He was in training for, oh, that's Shugborough Hall. That's right, yeah. So yeah, this is that, this, that. So this will be the first place that, that we visit. Um, and it's fitting, I think, um, because one of the, for our characters, um, one of the, the next places that they visited um, after um, after Cortirion, they, they went over to see Gilfannon in the House of a Hundred mm-hmm. Chimneys. Um, and this is, this is um, as you mentioned, Shugborough Hall. Um, and I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about this, if you don't mind. Well, I mean, the first thing, um, when I got there, I looked immediately to see how many chimneys were on the roof, <laughs> I remember. Uh, and, and there aren't that, there aren't, there definitely aren't a hundred. Um, but what's most interesting is in the garden, there's some really interesting little follies, which are these, you know, kind of just like buildings and stuff. And there was this one really interesting one that had a kind of, um, a painting on it with the et in, et in Arcadia Ego on it, which I thought was interesting, which is a kind of mystical thing. It's actually owned by a family um, huh. that allows it to, allows you to tour it and stuff. And some of the art inside was beautiful, but I didn't see a lot of chimneys. So I mean, again, I think <laughs> you, it might have been the type of thing that Tolkien looked at and said, "Yeah, that's interesting," as part of an inspiration for it or something, but. Um, I think the bridge is a lot more, we'll get to the bridge, but I think the bridge has a lot more foundation in something Tolkien really would have been inspired in. Sure, but well, let's... The fact that it's called Shugborough Hall and the fact that that means, you know, Shugbucka, you know, that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, Essex Bridge is, is actually not too yeah. far, it's just, just like, um, I don't know. If I, it's not a block. I'm, I'm thinking in terms of a city, but it's it's just Fairly down the close. road. We, yeah, we walked it. I, I walked it. I remember. Yeah. So here we go. We're doing a flyover. Here's the bridge. It's actually a really interesting shape, um, and we'll go right to the picture of that. Um, let's see here. Here we go. Essex Bridge. Here it is. That's it. And it, it was built by. Uh, it was built in Elizabethan times. And the river that goes under it. So in the little heraldic device of Tol Erethrin, Tolkien sketched the bridge. And he has two rivers going over it called the Gir and the Afros. Um, and you see the little trees in the background. He's got an elm and something else. So it's fairly close. And then, of course, later on, uh, I think in 1918, I think that's right. Somewhere around there, he wrote a poem called The Grey Bridge of Caverbell, 
uh-huh. um, where the elves go marching out and everything like that. And that is definitely, you know, the bridge. And it would have been during the winter when Tolkien wrote that. And of course, Grey Bridge, you know, that's so it all. Yeah, that, I think that's definitely an inspiration. So when I was standing on that bridge, I really felt like this is the Great Bridge of Tabernacle. Oh, this is just what Tolkien was talking about. Amazing. And, uh, you yeah. know, for, for us, uh, Tabernacle was where, um, you know, the characters got their kind of one of their first glimpses of, of Amman and, mm. uh, and, and to, you know, to stare into the sort of the, the tuna, maybe, um, you know, the path of light, uh, the path of light. Um, so, yeah, so this is Tabernacle. So um, there is another notable location, which um, I'm sure you'll, you'll mentioned um, is kind of, we're, we're not really sure if this was an actual location or if it was some sort of inspiration, but this is Rock Cottage. Um, and yeah. this is, this is where um, we know the Tolkien's lived um, when he was, I think he was recovering from trench fever in 1916. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just across the bridge um, over a few blocks. And we'll have a picture of this. Um, and this was actually recently in the news because it was just sold, I believe. <laughs> yeah. Here's a picture of uh, Rock Cottage. You, now, what do we know about this? Uh, you mentioned this well, in your blog. That, we know that he sketched it, um, and I think there it appears in, in Wayne, and Christi, uh, Wayne Hammond and Christina Stoll's um, book on Tolkien's art. Um, I don't know. I mean, for me... Did that inspire the Cottage of Lost Play? He also sketched some other um, cottages, like in Warwick and other places that might have inspired it. And of course, the, the idea of the cottage that, you know, bigger on the outside than on the inside, you know, that, of course, echoes another uh, mythos that, <laughs> uh, you know, Time Lord Magic. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you could find that in the in the stories of Kohalan. I mean, I, I don't know if that so much inspired him, basically. But yeah, that it, he, he definitely did sketch that. And nice. that is where Edith stayed and, and he stayed, yeah. And for the listeners, uh, the Cottage of Lost play is where um, where Ariel and our characters um, uh, met uh, Lindo and Barre and uh, Little Heart the Gong Warden, um, where the... Yeah, Tom, the mallet of, uh, they, the characters had to find the mallet of Tombo in order um, to play the, the last music of the Ainur after the Dagger Daggerath. Tom, uh, in, in our story. Um, uh, so, so did your characters have to get small, have to get small to go in? Like Ariel does. Well, we we talked a little bit about sort of the size thing, um, Mm. but um, we also there was a there was a kind of like a flashback scene where um, and I talked a little bit about this with Verlin Flieger about how time was kind of when you travel the path of dreams, um, time is kind of kind of yeah the Alori Mali the the time is kind of wonky. So one of the characters saw himself in the cottage as a child. Um, and so, yeah, that was a kind of a cool moment, but the, I loved the cottage of lost play and, and all of yeah. that. Okay. Um, well, okay. Well, you talk, you talk to the master scholar on Tolkien and time because Berlin Flieger's written the definitive, you know, book question of time, which talk, looks at the whole idea of how time works. Yeah. And Tolkien's work. And yeah, it's very well, Verlin's the one that convinced me that if if I were to pursue a further degree in Tolkien studies, that I would I would look at um, sort of his his tr- time travel uh, unfinished mm-hmm. works 
and um, and and how sort of you know the allure male like that that idea was in his head you know that the oh, I, yeah. the, the idea that you could you can pass on experience and memory like have the shared memory with people that have lived before um, you know mm-hmm. that was that was clear in a lot of his writings so yeah. um, that's that's where I would study that's where I would go yeah. deeper well there's a lot I mean Notion Club and and, uh, and Lost Road there's a yeah definitely there's a lot of work well andy this is great this has been really fantastic and and when i when i get there i'm gonna have i'm gonna know so much more about this um and i'm gonna be able to orient myself and i hope our listeners will be able to do that as well but if i could could i could i can i switch gears a little bit and 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 ask you some questions about you um yeah, so so we, we just traveled with you. We did a virtual travel uh, sort of tour of, of some places in the Book of Lost Tales. Um, and, and you talked a lot about language. And, and of course, I've talked a lot about your book uh, on language. Uh, uh, but I, I'm, I'm curious, have you ever developed any of your own languages? <laughs> yes, I have. And, um, and it's sitting in a drawer right over here in this room. And um, it, it's, it's got the Tolkienian name of Lindarin, which is a problem already. But I started, I started inventing languages. My secret by started when I was about 13 years old. Mm-hmm. And I've been working on it ever since on and off. Um, I had a great, uh, when I was actually working on the book of Demetra, um, I started really getting involved with it. And I actually started blogging and, and, um, Talking on Tumblr with David Peterson, who is the inventor of Dothraki and High Valerian and oh, wow. languages like that. And I was actually trying out some stuff on him, which was really cool. Um, and yeah, I work on it. The, 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 I mean, the thing with it, 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 it's what, what is your objective in doing language invention? You know, what I did it because I wanted to understand kind of the way Tolkien thought in a way about language invention. So that's kind of how I started it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was very Tolkienian when I first said it's less Tolkienian now. Um, but you need a lot of time. It's, it's, it, it could become all, you know, as, as, you know, Tolkien found, you know, it, 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 you could spend hours just, you know, structuring what the ablative absolute should be or, or you know, uh, what a new noun class should be or something like that. And of course, as with Tolkien, it breeded a mythology of its own. And there are, I have hidden away sketches of mythologies and things like that so yeah and it's something i take out every once in a while and do a bit of work on well, i hope someday we'll we'll get to see this uh, oh i don't know i think <laughs> so let's transition here so you mentioned um uh in the tolkien experience podcast you mentioned at the time back in january that you were getting ready to start a new job um mm. I, I was wondering could you tell us a little bit about uh this new job yeah, sure. Well, yes, after about being in opera, I've been in opera for about 20 years, uh, doing fundraising and a bit of marketing and press at one point. And uh, I've been at Glyndebourne Opera, which is an opera, um, it's, it's primarily a festival, but it's also more than that uh, down in Sussex. I did that for 11 years and had an amazing time. And I just decided I wanted to try something different. And, uh, and I just happened to, you know, there was this position at the Imperial War Museums to become director of development. And I love history. Um, and especially when I was doing my thesis, I spent a lot of time there because I was looking at a period in Tolkien's life, you know, uh, during World War One. And, you know, I wasn't doing a biographical thesis. I mean, John Garth has done the 
mm-hmm. definitive work on that. Um, but I was spending a lot of time there trying to absorb what Tolkien would have felt with things. And actually, we have his revolver from World War One at, oh. at the museum, which is really cool. Yeah. And I go and see it when I, anytime I can. Um, actually, it's up at IWM. We have, we have five venues. So in London, we're at, we have our own museum at Lambeth Row. We have Churchill's War Rooms, which are the bunker where Churchill directed most of World War II at, in Whitehall. We have a, bat, a warship called the HMS Battle, uh, Belfast, which is the only surviving warship from World War II. Wow. It also fought in the Korea War. It ran the Arctic convoys to the Soviets. It, it's, wow. it's, it's a living piece of history. And then we have Duxford in, um, in Cambridgeshire, which is an Air Force base where the um, Battle of Britain flew out of and everything. And then we have a museum in Manchester, and that's where Tolkien's revolver is right now at IWF North. So that became available, and I just went for it, and I got it, and it's an amazing, amazing place, incredible people. And I was there for about, I started in February, I was there for about a month and a half, just starting to get my stride, just getting, you know, meeting my team, starting to work on a strategy, and then boom, Armageddon happened. Yeah, um, so, yeah. and we've been working uh, from home, I think, you know, and everyone's together, and we're, and we're reopening our venue starting in August, which Really, really exciting. Um, and as a fundraiser, one of the most frustrating things is not being able to meet with people and fundraise because hmm. a lot of fundraising is about building relationships and getting to know people. So it's been a bit frustrating. But we're getting back and uh, we're going to celebrate the, battle, the 80th anniversary of the Battle of Britain in September with three days of air shows. So all very exciting. And, uh, and we're opening new galleries for Second World War and Holocaust next year, which are going to be phenomenal. So yeah, it's been an it's it's been an interesting time to start a new job. I wouldn't recommend it. Yeah, but it is what it is. And as I say in Lord of the Rings, there's always hope. You know, <sighs> always hope. There's a U catastrophe just waiting around the corner. So, yes, uh, yes, and we have learned about the U catastrophe from Merlin Flieger on this podcast. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah. Well, let's getting back to Tolkien then. Uh, thank mm. you for sharing that. But uh, do you have any? Do you have any Tolkien projects coming up that that people can be on the lookout for? Yes. Well, the the big one that is looming, and I I have devoted every Sunday for the last couple of weeks to getting this bloody thing done. Is I am working on turning my thesis into a book. Um, and uh, and and again, it's and I've kind of taken um, I'm kind of taking the world building kind of structure. Because I've become very interested in the whole concept of world building and transmedial world building. I've got an article coming out soon in the new um, volume that Mark Wolf is editing um, about this American Gothic TV show that I love called Dark Shadows, yeah. which was on TV in the late 60s and 70s and then has movies and things like that. Um, and so I've taken that kind of approach as saying, you know, and actually Berlin inspired me about this. I heard her give a talk in Oxford when her Cool Airbo book came out, which is fantastic. And she talked about this being Tolkien's first attempt at world building. You know, this is his first, you know, he's, he's, he's writing the myths, he's creating the maps, he's creating the languages, he's creating all these paratextual things like the heraldic devices of Tol Erethrin. So I'm looking at all of that with a real focus on the early languages. I'm really getting, I'm trying to get into the DNA of those languages and also present them in a way that isn't daunting to people. Because I think one of the things about Tolkien's languages, people always feel a bit daunted by all of it, you know, yeah. 
Yeah. But in any, in many ways, it's just another version of myth making. And, you know, Demetrius pointed this out in some of her works that, you know, within those lexicons, there are myths being born. You know, there are stories being told. And so I don't think you can study Tolkien without studying his languages because, you know, it was so into, you know, as, as Verlin Flieger's favorite bumper sticker, mythology is language, language That's is mythology, yeah. you know. And that is so true for Tolkien. So, yeah, I'm hoping to get that done soon. Um, it, it, it's, it, it, I'm starting to feel, I think I said this on the, on the podcast I did with Sarah, you know, I'm, I'm starting to feel like Tolkien must have felt trying to get the Silmarillion done because it's all about getting back into it and setting it up. So now I've, I've become very disciplined. Sunday is devoted to just working on the book. Very I don't, good. I don't read emails. I don't get involved in other projects. You know, I'm trying to relearn Sanskrit and learn Finnish, but not on Sundays, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So that's what I've devoted Sunday to, is to just get it done. And then I'd like to, I think the other thing I'm really interested in, thanks to the, you know, Carl Hochstetter and people like that, we have a lot of these language papers now published. But there's still a lot of contextualization and analysis that needs to be done of them. So I'd like to move away from the earliest period and maybe look at the work, uh, the language work he did when he was in Leeds in the 1920s and start to look at that and see, you know, he invents Noldorin, which is kind of the next step in Nomich, for example. Mm. And that will then progress to Cinder and later on. And what is he doing with, you know, with Quenya and all that? So there's a lot more. I mean, you could devote a lifetime to studying <laughs> Tolkien's language papers. And there's more to come. I mean, they're still publishing papers. There's, there's a yeah. lot more to come. Um, so yeah, so I'll never not have something Tolkien to do, that's for sure. Well, if anyone, uh, if anyone can do it, I think, I think you make the most sense. I mean, you, you, well, you have this great, you have this great foundation in his early works. So progressing into the twenties, I mean, you have, you have all of that sort of prior knowledge to, to bring to the table and, and sort of his next step, right? Yeah. And, th and there's some great work being done, you know, a wonderful, uh, Nelson Gehring, for example, who is a, he is a professional philologist who's done great stuff. James Cowber, for example. Yeah. You know, so there's a group of us now who are all kind of carrying on the work that was done by the initial group of Carl Hochstetter, who's still doing amazing, Patrick Wynn, um, um, people like Arden Smith, you know, people like that who really Christopher entrusted with his father's language papers, you know, and yeah. is publishing him in a, in a way that, you know, is presented with notes and editorial comments. It, it isn't just thrown out there or put on the on the internet, basically. And that's what we need, basically. So there's a lot of work to be done there, definitely. Well, I, you know, after all of these interviews, I come out and I'm so excited for the things that people are talking about because we always end with like, "Hey, what are you working on? What are you going to come out with next?" <laughs> so, so th thank you for telling it, telling us about that and sharing that with us. Um, and, and just. Thank you for being here and making this a rich experience. I really appreciate oh, it. My pleasure. It's a pleasure, yeah. And, and I hope uh, you get over here when all this is over and you can actually see the sights and everything. And uh, yeah. Someday. Someday, right? Yeah. There's always Brilliant. hope. <laughs> Though this marks the end of the episode, the road goes ever on. Until next time, join us at longwinded.one and consider giving us a review on Apple Music, Spotify, or really whichever platform you choose.